I have been wanting to come to this church for a long time. Not, not only to observe and rejoice in the grace that's just everywhere in this church. Uh, what a privilege to be here last night and to hear the testimonies of transforming grace. What a privilege to be here and be led by one of my favorite pastors on the planet, to be led by, in worship by one of the most famous worship leaders, to see three of my favorite former pastor's college students. Four. Well, I included you in the other. Uh, I, this is normal life for you. You come here, you worship, you're sharing lives. It's just not normal. I, I, and I, I trust you don't grow overly familiar with the grace of God that is so abundantly evident uh, in this room. To be here on the 10th anniversary, oh my, what a, what a privilege. Um, another reason I wanted to be here, though, was to thank you as a church, uh, to thank you on behalf of Sovereign Grace. Uh, I don't know how much you are aware of this. Many of you are, but you... You generously share your senior pastor, Greg, um, more broadly in Sovereign Grace, in, in this region of churches that Greg expends much time and energy in, uh, our, our national church planting group, which Greg is a vital part of, so other church planters are being trained, invested in by Greg to do what he has done here by the, by the grace of God. Soon he's going to be leading uh, more, more broadly, internationally. Thank you. That, that costs you. That costs your pastoral team. And I'm just so very grateful for your, for your generosity. I'm grateful for your investment in the future. Uh, when churches send guys to the pastor's college, especially smaller churches, sometimes I help pastors think about that and say, well, you want to, be, you want to send the right people um, because, you know, a lot of churches, they only get like one student every 10 years. In terms of the sacrifice that entails, in 10 years, you guys have sent three men, three very dear, dear men to me. Um, so thank you for that vision, that willingness to sacrifice, that willingness to support them as they come to be equipped. And just thank you for your example. We, we exist, you know this, Sovereign Grace, we exist to glorify Christ, to proclaim the gospel, and to see that happen through the planting of local churches in this nation and beyond. And when I come here, when I, I, I know of you, I hear a lot of stories about you, but now to be here, I just think, this is, this is exhibit A of why we exist. And it is marvelous in my eyes. And you bring much glory to Christ. So, thank you. We just sang my sermon. So we could just continue singing, I think. Um, because that's what I wanted to come was to, to say thank you. But, because God feeds us by His Word, please turn in your Bibles. Turn to the New Testament. And there, turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. It's, it's an honor to participate in your celebration of the Advent season. We are joining Christians around the world to reflect 
and study and meditate upon the, the coming, the, the advent of Jesus Christ to the earth. We've been singing about that wonderfully all morning long. But here's what we have to remember. That focus has, has never been more necessary. In our, especially in our prosperous setting, this, this is a dangerous season. December's a dangerous month. There's the obvious temptation that the busyness and the buying and by the end of the month, exhaustion overtake us in this season and eclipse the very one we claim to be worshiping. That temptation is always there. But there's actually a deeper danger to the Christmas season for Christian and non-Christian alike. Not because the trappings of the season overtake Christ, but because they may well distort Christ. His, his person is misunderstood. His, his significance is trivialized. The, the Christmas season is sentimentalized. At no time of the year are there, so, are there so many emotions surrounding the coming of Christ, but less thinking about the nature of Christ. Jesus' arrival is a sentimental one. It's sweet. It's non-threatening. The, the, the irony of such perceptions is that far from being safe, they're actually spiritually lethal. To sing about tidings of comfort and joy, if not biblically informed, is to spread false comfort and superficial joy. But when it's biblically informed, when we grasp the true answer to the carol's question, what child is this? Then we will be prepared, we'll be positioned to experience authentic comfort and enduring joy, the comfort and joy that Christmas Day announces. And, and so to do this, we need to consider the time pre-Advent, the time before the coming of Christ. We need, we need to zoom out from the manger, out from Bethlehem, to learn Bethlehem's backstory. In literature and in cinema, a backstory is what has happened to a character before they arrive on the present scene, right? So this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of the main character of Christmas, the baby in the manger who will be named Jesus before he arrived, before he was a baby. And it's that, it's that backstory that sheds light on the arrival, on the advent, and helps us understand the significance of that advent and the true identity of the baby in the manger. And for a glimpse of that true identity, it's difficult to do better than Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to Christians who had fallen prey to false teachers and their teaching. And whatever the precise nature of that teaching was, it had one deadly characteristic. It diminished Christ. It cast doubt on His sufficiency and their salvation. And so Paul 
discerns and addresses their greatest need by, by fixing their eyes and setting their hope on the true identity of Christ. And, and to do so, what Paul does as a wise pastor, he paints a portrait of Christ that's calibrated to their needs. And here's what they needed. They needed to see Christ in His unmatched glory and His unchallenged supremacy. They needed to have their eyes fixed on and their souls satisfied by and their hopes set upon the authentic Jesus, not one of their own imagination, not one warped by their fears or their circumstances, not one diminished by their emotions. And what's true of them is true of us as well. Not only in the Christmas season, but every season of our lives, every day of our lives. So, here's what I want us to do. I want us to just take in this portrait. Let's learn Bethlehem's backstory that we may truly come and adore Him this season. Amen? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This is the Word of God. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Merry Christmas. That is a breathtaking text painted on a cosmic canvas, all designed to portray to us this morning the, the supremacy of Christ. And in this portrait, as we look at it, we can discern two aspects of Christ's supremacy, two facets of the true identity of that seemingly helpless baby in the manger. We're going to look at two of those this morning. The first facet is this. If you're taking notes, this would be point number one. Christ is the pre-existent Son and Lord over all creation. The pre-existent Son, Lord over all creation. If we were to read further before, we'd see in verses 13 and 14, Paul has just spoken about Jesus as God's beloved Son, and he's reminded his readers about the redemption and the forgiveness that Christ brings. But then in our verses, he just unexpectedly launches into cosmology. It's as if he's saying, just whose kingdom have you come into? Who is this one? who brings forgiveness? How secure is that forgiveness? How far can we trust Him? Just who is this baby in the manger? 
So Paul answers, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And at this point in the letter, if you were to read it, everything changes. Gone are the complex Pauline sentences with clause after clause and participle after participle. There are no personal references in our text, no I's or you's or me's, just a litany of towering assertions, one claim after another, all riveted on Christ. Fourteen times in our verses we hear he, him, his, and it's vast and comprehensive in its expressions. Eight times we read all, every, everything. It's, it's like stepping into an, an informal welcoming foyer of a home and then going through a doorway and then entering a massive, ornate museum. All of a sudden, a new world opens up. A new world opens up for us in verse 15. And we learn, we learn something. Christ, we learn Christ is not a sentimental figure. He, he's not a model to inspire noble living or, or generous giving. Our salvation is not some small, private, merely personal matter. You know what happened to you when you were saved? We've been swept up into a cosmic drama. That's what's happened. So who is this beloved son of verse 13? Two titles greet us. Paul first describes his relationship to God. He is the image of the invisible God. God, you're a well-taught church. You know this. God is invisible. He is spirit. He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen. But Christ is his image. He makes God visible. He perfectly mirrors the, the nature and the life and the character of the Father. That's precisely what John teaches in his gospel, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Because he is his eternal Perfect reflection. He is the outshining of God's glory. That's how the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. This is who redeemed you, Paul says. This is who the gospel brings to you. Before he took on flesh as a baby in the manger, the Son of God was eternally alive and active as God. Christ insufficient? A more secure forgiveness somewhere else? A richer spiritual experience elsewhere? Something else more glorious and attractive and satisfying? Here, in Christ, is, is where the eternal God is seen and can be encountered and can be known. The second title moves from Christ's relationship to God to Christ's relationship to creation. Verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn 
of all creation. Now, in the early centuries of the church, that, that word firstborn was often a source of confusion, as if Christ was somehow within creation or the first creature. The term actually does the opposite. It's not a term of order. It's a term of rank. To, to be the firstborn of something means to be ruler over it. Psalm 89.27, a verse Paul probably has in mind, spells this out where God, speaking of the divine Messiah, pronounces, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You hear it? And our text actually says more. Christ is not the firstborn of the kings of creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. Prior to it. Supreme over it. Divine ruler of the whole created order. And verse 16 tells us why. He's supreme over all creation because he made it. Verse 16. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul doesn't let it, he just doesn't take a breath. Could he be more emphatic? And it's actually, it's actually more comprehensive than it sounds, more embracing than it sounds. Look at the text. When we read, for by him all things were made, you see that? It, it sounds like Christ was the agent through whom God created. Now, that's true. And Paul's going to say that later in this very verse. But first, he makes a larger, more comprehensive claim. All things were created literally in him. What does that mean? All things were created in him. Meaning, Christ... In, in his pre-existent, all-embracing, omnipresent godness, buckle up, Christ is the, the sphere, the sphere in which all created reality came to be, the domain in which all, creality, all created reality exists. And, and if, that, if, if that kind of blows your mind, welcome to the club. Welcome to church history. We spent millennia trying to get our arms around that. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, makes a, a valiant attempt to capture it. And it's helpful what he says. As the eternal son, he embraces the entire sphere of created existence. And nothing lies outside of him or is independent of him. Travel where you will, in space or time. Christ is present and ruling. As the song says, this, this, this is Christ the King. And Paul actually helps us at the end of the verse where he unpacks this comprehensive in him. All things were created through him and for him. So, not only was he there at the beginning, bringing it all into existence, God acting through him, he's the goal of it all. It's all 
for him, for his delight, for his, for his good pleasure, for his glory. And you saw, what, what does the all include? Paul specifies things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul is laboring to eliminate any exceptions or any exclusions. What we can see, what we can't see. Realities we're aware of and those beyond our reach. Even threatening ones. Especially relevant to the Colossians who were perplexed by the threat of spiritual beings governing their lives. <laughs> there are forces at work in this world. There are forces at war with God's people. Read the book of Job. Read Revelation 12 and 13. But there are no rivals. Even the darkest, the most threatening, these, even these exist for him. Subservient to him. Serving God's providential purposes to exalt his son who triumphed over all these powers. Chapter 2. And one day will vanquish them completely in a full display of his power and justice. And for you and me, everything about you is in the all things. Your life, your marriage, your family, your relationships, your, your education, your future, your ministry, this church, your gospel community. We, we exist for Him. To take, to take our, our, our tiny little life and, and the tiny space in, in the cosmos that we occupy and, and our time and our gifts, and our possessions, and our opportunities, and our relationships, and to see Him in all of them, and to bend them toward Him, to, to point to Him, to please Him, to serve His purposes in the earth. It all exists, everything exists for one great cause, to enjoy, and display, and to make more fully known the greatness and the glory. Christ. Our friend John Piper expounds on this reality. All that came into being exists for Christ. That is, everything exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you and the person you have the hardest time liking. Here's what I think the Lord wants to do this morning, to, to let Colossians 1.16 reframe your life and your trials and your frustrations and your heartbreaks, your long, long-suffering, seemingly 
unanswered prayers. Nothing about you is happening outside of His all-loving, all-powerful dominion. Nothing. And everything about you is being used by Him to display the greatness of Christ to you and through you. Isn't that glorious news? And if that weren't enough to show Christ all-encompassing supremacy, Paul adds one final stroke, verse 17, and He is before all things. Another more direct statement of Christ's preexistence. And here it is, in Him all things hold together. Stuff doesn't just exist. The, the, the universe created reality, the chair you're sitting on, the podium I'm standing behind, they, they do not have an independent existence. Paul tells us without Christ they can't exist. You see what's happening here. His power is what causes all things to cohere, to, to, to retain their created properties and positions and relationships. He, he holds it all together. Gravitational forces between planets, subatomic particle bonding, nations, governments, people, you, your brain, your body, your next heartbeat, your family, your your future, your circumstances, name it, things, people, the world, they don't just keep going. Everything is held together, not by impersonal forces, but by a person who, as the writer of Hebrews says, upholds all things by the word of His power. And if for one nanosecond He withdraws that upholding word, do you know what happens? I don't know. I'm not a physicist. I, cosmic collapse, I suppose. Worldview 101. All reality depends on Christ. Made by Him, sustained by Him, serving Him. The worldview of the Colossians needed a, a Christological adjustment. Is yours? In this season of a sentimentalized Jesus, is, is my perception of Christ sufficiently exalted? Are there, and I know there are, I, I know there are temptations. What things, what fears, what discouragements, what daunting circumstances are tempting to eclipse this preeminent Christ from my worldview, from, from, my, from my soul? This, ad, this Advent, let, let's broaden our mental nativity scene. All things exist within the sphere of His all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving reign. And all things exist to magnify Christ, to show 
forth his all-satisfying sufficiency. Well, as our poem unfolds, Paul's focus sharpens. And we see a second aspect of Christ's identity, which reveals his supremacy. He's not only the preexistent Son, Lord over all creation. Number two, Christ is the incarnate Savior, Lord over all redemption. Now, if I was to ask you to predict, if you didn't know the verse, to predict where Paul would go next, you, you might guess, well, he's talked about the cosmos, so maybe from cosmos to, to planet Earth, or from cosmos to nations, so, something more comparable in degree to cosmos. But that's not where he goes. Look at where he goes next, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He goes from cosmos to church. Why? Well, the answer is, is why the heavenly host broke out in song outside of Bethlehem. Christ is supreme over all, but the place, that supremacy, is expressed most gloriously is the church. Isn't that amazing? And, and don't, don't read by the metaphor. It says Christ is the head of the church. And with that metaphor comes love. Like creation, Christ directs and rules the church. That's, that's our hope, but it gets better. Unlike creation, he doesn't just rule. He's organically connected to his people, providing for their life, providing for your nourishment, providing for our well-being. Do you, do you see Paul's strategy, his pastoral strategy to, to these Christians losing their nerve? Enticed by offers of a new alternative spiritual power, Paul tells them, you, you are connected personally to the only true source of life and power. In America, we, you know, December, is, December is just one long month of people grasping after promises of joy. Paul interrupts that. He interrupts our frantic lives and tells us, do not look elsewhere for what only Christ can provide. And Paul begins to unpack this in verse 18, the, the second stanza of the poem where Paul now speaks of Christ after Bethlehem in his incarnate state. Look at verse 18b. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul is not letting us catch our breath. <laughs> Two more exalted titles that actually combine in a powerful way. So I want you to think with me for a second. What do you think of when you hear that phrase, the beginning? You hear the echo, don't you? Of the, of the very first words of the Bible, the beginning. And then he says, he's the firstborn title of supremacy, the firstborn from the dead, alluding to Christ's resurrection. Okay, so here's the logic. 
which will explode any small notions of the Christian life. In rising from the dead, Christ signals something. He became the beginning. Think Genesis 1. A new beginning. On, on Easter Sunday, a new creation was launched. And in His resurrection, Christ was crowned firstborn, bringer and Lord of the new creation, the rightful heir of all creation, come to claim the cosmos from sin and all its effects. Do you know what the Jews' ultimate hope was? It was their ultimate hope was for a future resurrection at the end of time that would inaugurate a messianic age bringing life and deliverance and renewal and blessing. Paul is announcing here that hope, it's arrived. Christ's resurrection has brought that age forward into this age, unleashing God's saving power into this fallen world. He, uh, he made atonement for sin. He conquered death. He defeated every enemy arrayed against God and His people. And now, through the gospel, as the Lord of the new creation, He's extending that power through the church. That's what the book of Acts is about. That's the ultimate, on this 10th anniversary, that's the ultimate explanation for this church in every true church. If a visitor comes here and asks one of your pastors, how did this church get here? He'd probably talk about the church planting team. He'd probably talk about the, the years of service by so many people in this room. That would all be true. But the ultimate answer to that question would be this. Christ has triumphed over sin and death. And now He's reclaiming a fallen world and extending His cosmic rule through the church. That's how this church got here. Christ is extending His rule through the earth, and here is an expression of it. Isn't that glorious? Makes you think different about your church. And the aim of this new creation is the same as the old creation. It's the main point of this stanza, 18b. That in everything he might be preeminent. And the grammar in the original is emphatic. I'm going to translate it for you most literally. That he might become in all things himself first. The goal of creation, it's the goal of the church. It's, it's why we do, it's why you do everything you do here, preaching the gospel, linking arms, encouraging each other's growth, pointing each other to Christ, counseling hurting members, raising up leaders, planting churches. It's all so that in everything, every, every heart, every life, Every church, every nation, all creation, Christ might become and be seen to be first, preeminent, most loved, most valued, most treasured, most labored for, most exalted, most trusted. That's what you're about here, because that's what God 
is about in all of creation. So, so what do you do for an unsettled Christian distracted from the gospel, unsatisfied by the gospel? What do you do? You do what Paul did. You rivet their attention on the one the gospel proclaims. Their salvation, our salvation, is, is, is more glorious than, than we ever dreamed. That salvation, our salvation, it's, it's not a mere doctrine. It's not a new life philosophy. Our salvation brought us to a person. Supreme over all. Glorious in his identity, unrivaled in his authority. You know, in, in Sovereign Grace, we, we, we speak about being gospel, gospel-centered. This is what gospel-centered means. It, it's not a label. It's not a motto. It's not a brand. It's not a methodology. The gospel is personal. Because it announces and exalts and brings us to a supremely glorious person. True gospel centrality will always center on and depend upon and point to and seek the glory of this Christ and the salvation He has accomplished. And that's how... Paul concludes. He's not quite finished yet. In in verse 19, he tells us why Christ's supremacy is the goal of all things and must be our greatest passion. First, because of, of who Jesus is. Verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ should have first place in all things because in Him we encounter all we can know and have from God. Do you know that? All of Think about who, what you know to be true about God. All of His power and, and all of His holiness and His beauty and His wisdom and His mercy and His graciousness, His slowness to anger, His steadfast love, his faithfulness, all of his, all of his godness, it all dwells in Christ. Brothers and sisters, to, to have Christ, to have Christ is to have all God can give you. He will give you nothing else. You need nothing else. And not only in, in Christ is where God can be found, in Christ is where God is acting. Verse 20, and through him, this is why he's preeminent, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so Paul concludes this this poetic praise by returning to his launching point in verse 14. He concludes with the cross where 
The glory of this one is most fully displayed. This one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this one through whom and for whom all things were created, it's this one, as we sing, who left heaven and took on flesh and lay in a feeding trough Embraced poverty. Endured the contempt of the very creatures he made and ruled. And willingly absorbed the the, the holy hostility of his father. The one whom he had only known eternal joy and fellowship. And giving and receiving of honor. Receiving from him hostility and wrath. All All to make peace. Removing God's wrath from us. And removing our hard-hearted hostility toward Him. Paul teaches us here that this glorious portrait would be incomplete without the cross. Because it's there where Christ's glory The fullest display of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. The place where wrath and mercy perfectly configured the place they meet. So that we might be forgiven. And one day, with faces fully unveiled, behold the true glory of this preeminent Christ. And until that day, this this vision of Christ, Christ in His pre-existent glory, Christ in His incarnate glory, Christ in His sure and unchallenged supremacy, Christ in His all-sufficient salvation, it's given to us, friends, to sustain us. What circumstances are you facing right now? This is meant to Interpret those circumstances. What fears do you have? This is meant to calm those fears. What guilt are you carrying? This is meant to lift that guilt. What ministry are you involved in? This is meant to fuel those labors. What distractions are are happening right now? This is meant to satisfy our souls. And here's our greatest challenge, not just at Christmas. Our greatest challenge is not to work harder for God. Our greatest challenge is to fight in order to see. To see this. To see Him. Not just to know it doctrinally, but to, to taste it experientially. To perceive behind, to perceive behind perplexing, discouraging circumstances, to, to perceive behind those things are his all-governing, all-sustaining authority. That's bending your circumstances, it's bending your life, it's bending every situation toward the goal of displaying Christ in all his glory 
and holiness and tenderness and love. To ha- this, 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 this portrait is given to us so that we might savor amidst heartbreak or holiday distraction. His all-filling, all all-pacifying, all-satisfying sufficiency. The most, the most potent remedy for fear or discouragement for any need we have is a high Christology. And so together, we fight. We link arms. We encourage We serve so that we might see and wonder and admire and be comforted and cheered by and fortified by the glories of Jesus and all He's done for us and all He promises to be for us. So together in this Advent season, let's let's just allow this portrait to expand that nativity scene in your soul. Together, let us proceed this this Christmas and next year and every day with our eyes fixed, souls satisfied by our hope set on this, this Christ, Lord of creation, Lord of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you, you have so generously revealed to us things that stretch our minds and exceed our imaginations and Lord, sometimes we just think it, it's, it sounds almost too good to be true. Thank you for sending your son to show us it's true. And I pray for Mayus Road Church on this anniversary of 10 years, moving into the next 10 years. Lord, would you grant them today, tomorrow, next year, Every year, would you grant these dear people eyes to see, hearts to lay hold of, strength to hold on to, just who this one is who saved them, just who this one is who is holding them. Just who this one is who promises to be everything they need. Lord Jesus, be magnified in every mind, every heart, every life here this morning. That you might be preeminent. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.